Welcome to Countering the Opioid Crisis, Time to Act, from the National Academy of Medicine and the Aspen Institute. This podcast explores the most critical drivers of the opioid epidemic and key strategies to stem the crisis. Host Ruth Katz leads the Aspen Institute's Health, Medicine, and Society program and co-chairs the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on Countering the U.S. Opioid Epidemic. Here's Ruth. COVID-19 is making the opioid epidemic worse, and the opioid epidemic makes COVID-19 more deadly. The American Society of Addiction Medicine's past president, Dr. Kelly Clark, says the pandemic makes it difficult, sometimes impossible, for people with substance use disorders, or SUDs, to get treatment. People who have opiate use disorder who get COVID have a higher risk of dying than people who get COVID that don't have opiate use disorder. This is a population that is at risk for succumbing to serious side effects or death of COVID. The number of new and worsening SUDs is rising as people look for ways to cope with the pandemic. Daniel Sledge works with the Williamson County Mobile Outreach Team in Georgetown, Texas. He responds to opioid-related mental health crises. Talking to some of these folks, it's like, yeah, look, the stress of everything. I lost my job. I lost my health care. I'm losing my housing. You know, I don't know how I'm going to pay for food or where I'm going to sleep tonight. You know, all of this kind of came crashing down at once. People are trying to deal with this unprecedented situation and the extreme levels of stress that come with it. More than 40 states reported increases in fatal overdoses since the pandemic began. It's time to take a close look at what's going on and what needs to change. Kelly, Daniel, welcome. Great to have you here. Thanks. Thanks. It's great to be here. Let's start by really beginning to set the stage. You've both been involved in responding to the opioid epidemic for years, actually way, way, way before the emergence of COVID-19. Daniel, let me start with you. Describe for us what it's been like for you since the emergence of the pandemic. Sure. So I'll answer this in terms of um, our response on the outreach team and doing peri and post-overdose follow-up. Before COVID, the biggest thing is that we had a much larger menu of options for somebody who wanted to engage in treatment to choose from. That was the biggest difference. Afterward, several places at first just closed down or some of the inpatient detoxes or respite centers were not able to logistically make space enough to have single person rooms or anything like that. So, you know, a lot of places closed and that menu kind of shrunk down to almost nothing. So we had to get a really creative in terms of connecting people to services. The other thing that was a stark difference is that our call volume as part of the crisis team, our call volume went way, way up post COVID. And on top of that, our staff went down because some of them were reassigned to COVID specific roles. So we kind of had this double challenge. And I feel like for a while there, we were just running around doing damage control, just trying to put out fires. You know, a lot of people were accessing social services for the first time ever and had become food insecure and and housing unstable or unhoused for the first time and, and kind of all at the same time. So those were some of the biggest challenges that we've seen. You know, a lot of people fell down to the bottom level of that 
Maslow's pyramid, just trying to get access to food and shelter, much less medications that that they may have been on for a while. So, so what were some what what were some of the options they had before COVID that they lost out on once COVID emerged? There was an office-based opioid treatment. They stopped taking new patients. One of the uh, inpatient detoxes closed. Another one eventually went out of business post the onset of COVID. And then I think there were fewer options for new patients to access office-based care, especially at first when, you know, so much was unknown. So thankfully with some of the new provisions by SAMHSA and DEA, we were able to get people access to care just by telemed visits. SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, and DEA is the Drug Enforcement Administration. Both are federal agencies. So basically, people had fewer places to go. Fewer places to go. So if somebody said, hey, you know what, I do want XYZ service, then it, it was like, all right, you know what, normally they would be taking people, we would be able to get you in in a reasonable amount of time, but that's not an option right now. Fewer places to go and longer waits to get in. Kelly, what about you? How would you compare your pre and post COVID experiences? Oh, I think that Daniel did a really great job of doing that sort of bottoms up approach to what's happened. You know, before COVID, we had still a problem with an inadequate uh, number of evidence-based treatment providers in every community in the country, really. But what happened with COVID is that a number of things happened. People who are providing care can get COVID. And the understanding of what needed to happen for staff and employees to be able to function in a healthcare environment without sufficient PPE was rapid and somewhat devastating. A lot of organizations that do treatment for addiction really don't come from a medical standpoint, and they didn't know how to do infection mitigation and et cetera. And large numbers, as Daniel said, of treatment kinds of providers did in fact close down or were repurposed if in a general medical area to be general medical beds. One of the things that was really impressive, I think, about the initial response was how quickly some parts of the federal government relaxed some rules the rules about doing telemedicine to get started on medications, basically everything but methadone, were relaxed at a federal level. In my state, which is Kentucky, they worked very quickly to relax the requirements as well at a state level for providing treatment for people with pain as well as people with addiction. And the payers moved very quickly to pay for telemedicine. So that was a really very rapid and important shift to some of the telemedicine Now that you're both in the middle of this, what would you describe as your biggest, most difficult challenges that you and those with whom you work are now facing in trying to do the jobs that you do and do so well? Kelly, what what would you say are the two or three biggest challenges you face? Well, our, our biggest challenges are always around regulation and payment. And those have been in place before, but they're also in place with COVID because the what I mentioned about some of the changes that have been allowed, those could change back in a heartbeat, literally with the stroke of a pen. And all of that that's being allowed by telemedicine could go away. So that is a that is a huge issue for us. Another one of the big issues is around how we're dealing with people, as Daniel was saying before, who now are struggling at a much more basic level, being unemployed not knowing how they're going to make their rent, how to get their food, people who are at home with their children without childcare trying to work. 
the resources that are available for them, just given the entire change in society, are inadequate and are, are going to stay that way. So the other thing that, that's really important for us is to try to keep people connected. And that goes back to not just telemedicine things, but things around support groups and mutual help groups and groups that aren't just for people who have been diagnosed with a substance use disorder, but people with lots of different kinds of stress issues. So one of the things that's been really impactful for us as addiction doctors is trying to get information out to people on how to gather safely, how to do it in support groups, how some of this treatment can proceed. So one of the things that I would say is if any treatment providers or people who are trying to figure out how to do mutual help groups, if they just Google ASAM, like the American Society of Addiction Medicine and COVID, we've put up, I don't know, 15, 18 pieces of guidance around this that's available for people. Daniel, what would you say are the one or two biggest challenges that you and folks you work with are now facing in addressing this problem? The biggest challenge has been this stark uptick in call volume. We need more staff. You know, so right after COVID came in, into our area, I might be on outreach at an extended stay motel or something in the parking lot with somebody. And then three, four, five other people might come up and say, hey, I, I don't have food. I don't have... XYZ medication, or I need help paying for another week at the motel. And so we just need, we need more staff, more access to resources. You know, healthcare resources are finite. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges overall, just in general, responding to this overdose and drug poisoning crisis in the context of the pandemic. You've both spoken to the issues that you face doing your own jobs. Let me turn to the challenges faced by patients, those individuals with substance use disorders. Kelly, you and your team provide treatment to those with SUDs. What specific challenges has the pandemic created for these people and how are they navigating throughout the pandemic? Actually, people who have opiate use disorder who get COVID have a higher risk of dying than people who get COVID that don't have opiate use disorder we're really seeing that this is a population that is at risk for succumbing to serious side effects or death of COVID. The problems that have been facing people with addictive disease now are just more acute than what they have been. And our basic issue is that we have never had in this country any kind of coherent or cohesive or a comprehensive even construct of a treatment system and we need to build directly to Daniel's point, an actual treatment infrastructure that is based on evidence-based care. Because right now, a patient, as Dan said, somebody could say, hey, I want help. There's no way for that patient to know. There's no way for their family to know. There's no way for their primary care doctor to know if a treatment program down or in the next city over is providing appropriate care, evidence-based care, or care that could even be harmful. So the very baseline pieces are, are difficult for folks. So just getting into the appropriate kinds of treatment, knowing what to expect, getting the appropriate follow-up, every piece of the way is problematic and more acute now with COVID. You mentioned earlier about stress levels going up. In addition to the things you've just talked about, I assume the pandemic has created lots of stress among those you treat, higher than normal, I suspect. Can you give us some examples of the role stress is playing in all this? 
Let me give you just one thing to think about. As a culture, we've taken a lot of things like Valium, benzodiazepines, Xanax, and Clonopin over time. Those are sedative drugs that we use for anxiety. But for 10 years in the US, there have been less and less and less prescriptions for Valium and those kinds of drugs for 10 years going down. From like March on, our rates of prescribing across the country for those are up over 30% for those kinds of sedative drugs that we use for anxiety. And you're talking about across the board now? Across, across the, board, the board, just that kind of sedative. The amount that people are drinking right now has been astonishing. I hear from colleagues all around the country that they can't even grasp the 20 something year olds coming in with liver failure from drinking at rates that we just have not ever seen before. People are isolating, they're without their social structure of having to get up and go to work. And structure is really important for people to have an external structure. And they're not out interacting with their clergy, going to their doctor just to take care of their routine health things. All of those pieces have kind of fallen down. And so, you know, gosh, what I would say to people is, Make those connections back again. You can see your doctor even on your telephone in a lot of areas. You can go to a support group, on your, reach out to your clergy by telephone. Get those connections going because the more connections we all have, the better we all do as individuals and communities. What about the stress levels among health providers, including paramedics? Daniel, what's happened in terms of the stress levels with those you, with whom you work? I mean, obviously it's shot sky high. When COVID came into our area, there were vacation callbacks and there was a, a moratorium on taking time off. And so much at first was unknown. And so you're unsure of what you're walking into when you make contact with somebody in direct care. And there's this level of anxiety like, okay, is this next scene or this next call the one who is somebody who's going to be pre-symptomatic for COVID? And there's a hypervigilance, I think, among providers. Like, I can't get lax about anything, about mask, goggles, hand cleaning, anything like that, because the one time you do will be the time that something will get past the barrier. So yeah, I just think a lot of heightened anxiety among providers. And the other anxiety among providers is, you know, not wanting to bring something home to our families. And so yeah, it's definitely stress level has, has Way been up. up. Absolutely. Yeah. Kelly, yeah, I mean, what about some examples among physicians and nurses and others you work with? So look, I mean, let's just be really, really clear. Medical personnel are dying of COVID. Medical personnel in this country are dying of COVID and are seeing the large numbers of the general population refusing to wear masks, which has been beyond demoralizing to doctors and nurses and EMTs and paramedics and respiratory therapists and the wide variety of medical providers that I work with. There's now a feeling that they're frontline cannon fodder and no longer being respected. And the burnout that has been occurring in medical professions for several years now, you know, with increasing suicide rates, particularly among physicians, there is no sign that that's gone down with COVID. Rather, that is going up. General thoughts about suicide have gone up in the general population. And we're hearing lots of reports from colleagues about this across the country. So let me ask you both this. Looking at both what's the impact on providers, the impact on patients with SUDs, 
Can you speak to the impact that all of this has had overall in confronting the country's opioid crisis? What I mean by that, are we just somehow holding on? Has progress that we might have been making slowed? Or have we really lost ground in combating this national epidemic? We've lost ground. Absolutely. We lost ground. I think that pre-COVID, the status quo left a lot of room for improvement. And yes, we've got a long way to go. We've got this epidemic of overdose deaths that's been overshadowed by our pandemic of COVID, which we've rightly need to focus on. But our overdoses have gone up substantially since COVID. And by the way, they, they hadn't been trending down even immediately before COVID. So they've gone up since COVID and that's superimposed on our endemic. We've got drug use and misuse at very high levels in, in our society, even before the overdose rates. But our overdoses are going up and we are not going to be getting, able to get a handle on COVID. We're not going to be able to get a handle back into our, our society until we deal with our opioid and other addiction problem in this country. Despite all the challenges you, you guys have just discussed and even setbacks, when I said, have we lost progress or have we really lost ground? And you both immediately said yes. Despite the setbacks, it does seem the pandemic has brought about at least some unintended benefits, if you will, such as, Kelly, as you suggested, relaxed rules and regulations that have allowed easier access to addiction treatment. Daniel, do you agree? First of all, do you agree with that, that some of the relaxation of rules and regulations have made a difference in easier access? And if so, can you give us some examples? I absolutely agree. And I know there were a lot of advocacy folks who worked incredibly hard to kind of get those changes and especially in, in as timely as they were made for, for DEA and SAMHSA to relax some of the restrictions on, you know, methadone and buprenorphine. So for example, going out to and making contact with participants who say, Hey, I heard about this program from someone I know we want to get started on buprenorphine. We want to start Suboxone, right? Suboxone would be kind of like a branded version of buprenorphine. That, and then there's methadone. These are medications that are used to treat opioid use disorder. And so looking at that menu that's now shrunk, saying, okay, well, this place is not accepting new patients. This place is closed. This place went out of business and on and on the provision for telemed opened up a whole new item on the menu, if you will. And so we partnered with this awesome addiction medicine doctor in Austin. And I met these folks, the participants, you know, in a park at a picnic table, two meters away, of course, and set up a hotspot on my phone, set up the laptop, made sure there was a good connection. And the doc was able to have a face-to-face via technology with these folks and then prescribe the medication. I picked it up from the pharmacy, delivered it to them, and they were able to be on this medicine that otherwise they probably would not be able to access. What about Narcan or Naloxone? That's the nasal spray that can help reverse an opioid overdose. Have we made that easier for people to have access to? We give out a ton of Narcan. And one of the difficulties 
is just people are scared to engage with healthcare for several reasons. One of them, though, having to do with COVID is that they don't want to get sick, right? So I've seen abscesses or cellulitis, so skin infections that might have gone on longer unattended or gone on longer without somebody having gone to the emergency department because they're worried if I go to the ER, I'm going to get COVID there. So I'm just going to not go or I'm just going to try and you know ride this out as long as I can. I think just anyone that we make contact with, we get them to lock zone and you know, as much as they can get out into the community as well. That's one thing that we've continued to push, especially in our area after we've seen a huge spike in overdoses related to press pills or counterfeit pills containing fentanyl. Kelly, you mentioned earlier telemedicine. That seems to be uh, an unintended benefit, if you will, of the pandemic. Again, as you mentioned, the use of this technology has just skyrocketed across the board. As you said, it has been helpful, I think, in um, dealing with the treatment of people with SUDs. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? And are there other benefits or improvements with other technologies dealing with other with uh, ongoing treatment options that really have had this unintended benefit as well? Can you give us some other examples? Sure. So what telemedicine used to be before COVID is that a, a patient who would go into a medical center, they would see somebody, a staff there, they would go into a room with their telemedicine equipment, their audio and visual, they would get their blood pressure taken or whatever. The person would sit in the room with them and they would dial up basically the doctor who would be at a different location. And then they would have their session there and the person would leave their healthcare situation and go back home. But what's happened now, the relaxation that happened with COVID is that the patient doesn't have to go into that healthcare center anymore. They can literally from their home engage in a telehealth, a telemedicine interaction with their doctor or other healthcare provider. And that's a big change, but let me be clear, that, that is a temporary change that is a federal change that's around particularly Medicare payments. There's some states that still have problems with this. And literally when the emergency runs out, we are not at all sure that we are going to be able to continue to do exactly what Daniel said, because it requires changing a law or a regulation in DC to continue to do this. So this has been incredibly helpful and moved things much faster than they had been moving for several years. But we need to stand back and solidify those gains in order to make sure we don't lose those going forward. That's a perfect segue to actually my next question. And and that's about lessons learned. Uh, And I guess lessons that we're still learning, both about what has gone wrong and what has gone at least somewhat right in addressing this opioid epidemic within the COVID pandemic. Going forward, because I think we'd all agree the opioid epidemic will continue long past the time we hope the COVID pandemic is under control. Going forward, are there things we should do differently than the way we've been doing them in the past in terms of both practice and policy? How much time do I have? What would you like to see? What would you like to see be done? (laughs) Kelly, what would you recommend? Actually, let me put it this way. What would you tell the administration? This is not a hard one. I would tell the administration that we will not be able to meet any of their policy goals unless we look very clearly at our drug misuse and addiction problem in the U.S. We cannot get people employed if they can't pass a drug test. 
And I will tell you that's a problem in my community where a, an employer repatriated 2,000 jobs and then immediately had to think about sending those jobs back overseas because literally people couldn't pass a drug test. If we don't help employers know how to deal with people when they get an addictive disease and how to get them back to work and keep them back at work. If we don't have appropriate childcare for people and understand that drug use is also addiction, a women's issue, because we've got a lot of single parents out there. This is an issue beyond public health and public safety. This is an issue of our justice system and our social service system. And there was a school in Eastern Kentucky with 300 kids and 30 dead parents. I mean, we don't have parent-child days. We have caregiver-child days because so many parents are dead in rehab or incarcerated. Our foster care, our social services, totally overwhelmed. What we need to do is to look at our drug problem from an issue of building an actual treatment system that's evidence-based, stop paying for what doesn't work, pay for what does work, engage all of these different stakeholder groups, including the people that are in charge of insurance and Department of Labor, all together to look at this from a comprehensive three-dimensional approach. And then we can pull the right levers to get done what we must get done. Let me press you a little bit. All those things are important. And I think many people would agree need to be addressed to take on this problem, but they also take a long time to implement. They're not going to happen overnight. Are there some things based upon the experience that we've had that you have seen that have really made a difference? Like the example you've given with telemedicine that you've, you've said, we want to make that permanent. Are there some other examples that you would say immediately we should put those into, into effect and that could make a difference? Daniel, jump in here if you've got some ideas as well. Uh, yes. I think that continuing the provisions for telemed and continuing the provisions for take-homes for methadone would be a good start. We should deregulate buprenorphine and methadone as well. These need to be medicines that are left between a patient and a prescriber to decide what is best for him or her. Other changes I'd like to see, harm reduction workers are essential healthcare workers. They should be treated as such. There needs to be more funding. And if we could tap into some of the lawsuit money from the makers of some of these opioid medications and then route that funding toward harm reduction coalitions, that's a change I would like to see as well. In terms of deregulating these medicines, I know that it's controversial, but the DEA should not be in healthcare. I would not ask my doctor for legal advice. We should not be going to law enforcement agents for medical advice. Daniel, I think what, you're, what you mean is to, to take away the regulations that methadone to treat addiction must only be used in a licensed methadone clinic and buprenorphine has to have training by the clinician, has to have, there's a certain cap. We can't treat more than 275 patients, even when we're experts at a time. Is that what you mean by deregulate? Yes, yes. And that's, okay, all, that's all current law. That's all yes, current, that's current law. law. All of those are still in place. The things that Daniel just said, yeah, those are still in place. Okay. But the other things that you mentioned that we could do very quickly, we could do Medicaid re-entry. This is incredibly important because where we see 
where people are at most risk for dying is when they're coming out of incarceration, a, a jail setting or prison setting, or coming out of a rehab where they have not been given appropriate medication to take as they leave, which would be, you know, methadone, buprenorphine, potentially uh, naltrexone. And when they're leaving, they're at very high risk of dying. And we know that if we give people their choice when they're leaving a jail, you know, two thirds of them take method, third will take buprenorphine and their rates of dying go down so low. I mean, they did this in Rhode Island and it decreased the entire state's overdose death rate. So something that you could do fast that's incredibly impactful would be to do that, get, pe get people into their medication treatment and turn on their Medicaid as they're leaving incarceration as well. Kelly, Daniel, any parting thoughts? We talk a lot about stigma and countering stigma. This is one of the chief barriers to accessing care for our folks. I feel that sometimes we use the word stigma when we're actually talking about discrimination. And the fact that it took this respiratory virus for there to be changes so that people with opioid use disorder could easier access proven treatments to save lives. It took this respiratory virus and not the ongoing crisis of people we've lost to overdose. To me, that's the epitome of discrimination. As we focus on COVID, which we need to focus on COVID, we can't take our eye off of the increasing numbers of deaths that we have due to our drug problem in the US. And that drug problem is not just opioid overdoses, but it's opioids and stimulants. And it's opioids and stimulants and the sedatives, like those Valiums kinds of drugs. And it's alcohol mixed in with opioids and sedatives. And we are really hurting in communities by this problem. Before COVID, during COVID, it's worse. And after COVID, we're going to have to pick up these pieces and they're going to be worse if we don't start doing it now. Kelly Daniel, you've given us an awful lot to think about as the nation continues to confront this epidemic within the pandemic. Thank you both so much. Thanks. Thank you, Ruth. Dr. Kelly Clark specializes in addiction medicine, evidence-informed behavioral health care, and payment reform. She founded Addiction Crisis Solutions and has provided expertise about the opioid crisis to many federal agencies. She's also the immediate past president of the American Society of Addiction Medicine. Daniel Sledge responds to mental health crisis calls with the Williamson County Mobile Outreach Team in Georgetown, Texas. He provides follow-up after opioid overdoses to train patients and their loved ones on administering the Loxone and connect them to treatment and recovery resources. In upcoming episodes of Countering the Opioid Crisis, Time to Act, We'll explore racism's role in the opioid epidemic, the stigma of addiction, and the changing nature of pain management. So don't forget to subscribe and make it easier for others to find this podcast by giving us a rating in Apple Podcasts. I'm your host, Ruth Katz. Thanks for joining us. I hope you're staying safe and healthy. Ruth Katz is Vice President and Executive Director of the Aspen Institute's Health Medicine and Society Program. She co-chairs the National Academy of Medicine's Action Collaborative on countering the U.S. opioid epidemic. The conversations in this podcast build on the ongoing work of the NAM Action Collaborative. 
The Action Collaborative is committed to developing, curating, and disseminating multi-sector solutions designed to reduce opioid misuse and improve outcomes for all who are affected by the opioid crisis. To learn more about the Action Collaborative, please visit nam.edu slash opioid collaborative. Our theme song was composed by Benjamin Lerner and Joshua Sherman and recorded at Old Mill Road Recording in East Arlington, Vermont. The Aspen Institute's Pearl Mac created our logo. Our podcast editor and producer is Shauna Lewis. Special thanks to the Aspen Institute and the National Academy of Medicine.